We've covered a lot of ground over these days. We've been reminded we're people of the Word and people of the Spirit whose future is secure. As we've stepped through this letter to Titus um, with Dave and Mark, we've seen that the life-giving, healthy doctrine of the gospel is the pulsing heartbeat of the church that we need to speak this truth to each other because we know that the grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And I have the great privilege of pointing you to Titus 3 and reminding you of a few things before we go. Reminding people of things, however, can be a slightly perilous exercise. In my experience, you get, remind, you get thanked for reminding people of things about 50% of the time. When people remind me of things, about half the time I'm genuinely grateful when Fiona says to me, did you remember the game is just starting? Or did you remember to actually pay for our holiday? You know, pieces of information that ensure we don't miss out on something pleasurable or we avert disaster. Those are good reminders. Then there are the other kind that are just really annoying. I have asked you to do this six times before, but have you actually done it? The, I know you don't want to do it, but you can't ignore it forever kind of reminder. Or the, I know you won't mind me, you won't like me saying this, but I think you're going to do the opposite kind of reminder. Reminders like, have you tidied up the mess you left in the laundry? Have you made a dentist appointment? Make sure you're loving and gentle with the girls while I'm away. I don't like those kind of reminders. Why not? Honestly, it's because even after years of following Jesus, I'm still proud. Pride is basically thinking well of ourselves where there is no reason to do so. Pride says, I know, I have that covered. I would never dream of. I don't need your help. I've got this. But in reality, we are still weak and inconsistent and forgetful and need all the help we can get. But the marvelous news of the gospel, as we've seen over these days, is that our God has already given us all the help that we need, and He is so quick to give us real-time help as we need it. And that includes these final words that Paul writes to Titus, where he tells Titus to make sure that he reminds the Cretan Christians and us, as we scatter again from this first kinfar, well, to remember some pretty basic things. The first one's in the first couple of verses. He says, remember, we're different, so act differently. Now, Paul has touched on this a couple of times in the letter. Life on Crete was pretty challenging. It was a hard-drinking, rough-edged culture. Most people were spoiling for a fight most of the time. We know now just to send them to Cavan because there's someone ready to fight them, you know? <laughs> but so, so Titus, <laughs> Titus reminds God's people to be different. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
Now, the first thing to see there is that Paul says, remind them of stuff that they already know and should be doing already. In one way, Titus 3 verses 1 and 2 are not honestly the most interesting material in the book. There's not a lot of new material. No real surprises in Titus chapter 3. Paul says, Titus, just tell them what we already know. But remember, when it comes to the gospel, novelty is seriously overrated. Over the years, I have been well and truly convinced that the Christian life isn't actually all that complicated. It's just hard. What I need is not actually new information. It's the grace to live out what I already know. Of course, sure, you know, when I rock up in church or come to a conference like this and listen, you know, it's great if there's an occasional new insight or a different perspective or a dawning realization. I do want to keep learning and growing, but mostly I just need to be reminded of the gospel and encouraged to take hold of it again. So if you're a teacher, if you ever stand up in front of God's people, remember you don't need to put yourself under pressure to come up with great, blinding, novel insights. In fact, in my experience, if you've come up with a blinding, novel insight, it's almost certainly wrong. <laughs> and if no one in the history of the Christian church has ever said it, well, then it's definitely wrong. <laughs> we don't need to be terribly clever. John Stott once wrote, all conscientious Christian teachers, once they are delivered from the unhealthy lust for originality, just take pains to make old truths new and steal truths fresh. So Paul says, Titus, you don't need to dazzle. You don't need to innovate. Set your heart on making old truths new and steal truths fresh. Remind God's people that we're different and encouraging them to be different. So in those two verses, Paul just highlights seven implications of the gospel, which it would be really good for Titus to emphasize on Crete. A guy called Polybius, writing a couple of hundred years earlier, had said that the island was characterized by insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. It's just in their blood. Can't think of any other islands anywhere that are like that. So Paul tells Titus to remind them first to be submissive to rulers and authorities. I think as Irish people, we need to hear that sentence. That's hard. Now, this is the executive summary of Paul's standard approach to the subject. Presumably, Titus had heard Paul on this subject more than one, more than once, so he just sums it up for them. But in Romans 13, Paul spells it out for the benefit of those who hadn't heard him in the flesh. Here's what he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I've got to say, I really don't like that part of the Bible. I, I am a nonconformist. My theological tradition is nonconformist. I am personally nonconformist. I breathe the air on this island where we have taken nonconformity, and if only it were in the Olympics. Like, and Paul says, pay to everyone what you owe them. Be subject to the governing authorities. Remember, this is Roman rule. The Romans weren't exactly a model of kindness, reasonableness, and generosity. They built great roads, but their empire was run on a heady mixture of sheer military power, organizational genius, ethnic superiority, and swift and summary justice. And Paul says, obey them. Right up to the point where obeying the government would be disobeying Jesus. Now, for most of us, keeping the rules is a struggle. For others, even though we may be rule keepers by instinct, it's still a challenge to give honor and respect to those in authority. Either way, as Calvin said in the, in the 16th century, by nature we all desire imperial power so that no one is willing to submit himself to another. But we are gospel people. We've already been mastered by the king who rules all things. He says, be different. We are freed and commanded to be respectful and compliant to those whom God himself has set over us in the practical details of life, no matter how hard it is. That's the first way we're to be different. The second, we're to be obedient. Now, I think Paul has in mind the action that flows out of a submissive attitude as our respect spills over into action constantly and consistently. Now, we've talked a couple of nights ago about the fact that being a Christian is essentially a matter of listening to God speak and doing what He says. Paul says, get on with that. Now, of course, there's lots more that could be said. We've all got a battle against the spirit of the age and our own persistent sinfulness and the evil one. Obedience is really hard to pull off, but Paul tells Titus to remind the people of Crete that this obedience really should be the dominant note of our lives because we are new people, people of the Spirit, who have the resources to obey the Word, which is why he also says, thirdly, be ready for every good work. See, the gospel doesn't lead us just to be compliant, but, in pro but proactive in seeking out ways and opportunities to do every good work. We're to be different because we are supposed to be poised to act for the benefit of other people. In just a couple of hours, you know, we'll hit the N7 and the the N4 and the N1 and the N2 and every N in Ireland almost as we start to make our way home to pick up where we left off. 
But what difference is it going to make to the people around us that we have been here? Paul says, remind them to be ready, poised to do every good work. Now, can I suggest I've been at a lot of Christian conferences and weekends through my life. For most of them, I've then gone home, been exhausted, been slightly annoyed because, you know, you've come off this kind of great experience. I've generally been pretty grumpy with the people I live with, okay? Now, this is where I have an advantage. I've got 32 hours to get my heart sorted out before I have to actually engage with anyone again. For some of you, it's a bit more urgent. So, can I suggest that, that right now, and before you go home, before you drive in the gate, you actually pray specifically that when you walk in, God will show you all kinds of good work to do. Good work to the people you live with, <laughs> to your neighbors, to your colleagues in work tomorrow. Now, of course, there may be some things that we just need to put right that we haven't been doing, but can I suggest you actually do First, pray when you drive in the gate, but also where there are things that you need to just quietly put right in the strength of God, that you write them down and just commit to do it. Remember. Then he adds four more things quite quickly that are negatives. He said, speak, don't tell them not to speak evil of anyone. Now, in any generation, I reckon, a refusal to slander other people or run them down or just snipe at them will make us stand out. But notice how broad this is. Speak evil of no one, full stop. Now, why shouldn't we do that? Well, we shouldn't do it really because when we do that, we show that in that moment, we have completely forgotten the gospel. We are relating to other people in a way which shows we have forgotten that we are broken, messed up, sinful people for whom Christ had to die. Who are we that we think we can take pot shots at other people? It's a denial of the fact that we are the people of God. Now, if we get that, it will also mean we avoid quarreling. Because quarreling always flows from our insistence, our perspective, our preference. Um, that, that our preference and, and uh, that our perspective and preference, our interests must come first. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's basically impossible to have a really good fight with someone without becoming selfish. The second a conversation becomes a little bit heated, as you feel you know, your, your kind of tension begin to rise as it starts to matter to you that you win this argument, what is happening is that you are withdrawing and disengaging from other people, that you are giving in to the desire to win, to protect yourself, and you're stepping away from a concern for other people. But the way of the gospel is to steer away from fights, to be relentlessly committed not to quarreling with people, but to loving and respecting others and acting for their good. Then the sixth thing, we need to be gentle. Paul uses this word in the next, translated courtesy in 2 Corinthians 10, saying that by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, uh, we should treat others properly. 
It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says he's gentle and lowly of heart. In Matthew 21 where Jesus rides on a donkey as a humble, gentle king. See, in these pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus, Paul tells us repeatedly to be gentle, self-controlled, humble. They're all in the same ballpark. You see, when Christ Himself, by His death for us, has taken the sting out of our angst, has taken away from us the need for us to fight our corner because Christ has already fought and won for us, it shows a calm gentleness should be one of the defining marks of the people of God. Now, I know that this is harder for some of us than others. I've got to say, I am deeply envious of some of you. You just appear to have been born with a ridiculously unfair head start in the gentleness stakes. Because some of us are not gentle by nature. We are hard-edged or mischievous or stubborn or anxious or outspoken, prickly. But in the gospel, God says, He makes us gentle because we have a gentle Savior. And through our lives, the the beauty of the work of God through the gospel is that even for those of us with more than our fair share of rough edges, that our gracious God gradually produces this Christ-like gentleness. And then number seven, we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I think the ESV's translation here does sound a little bit quaint, as if Paul's main concern is that we all learn to act like we come from, you know, the nicest parts of South Dublin, you know. But that's not what he's saying. He is saying the way in which we treat all kinds of people should set us apart because our lives are marked by a glorious consistency that pays no attention to what people may or may not be able to give us, but just shows grace to all. Now, where's the rub of that for you? Who's the person or who are the people that you're tempted to be short with, cool towards, even in church, even here with you? Are there people that actually, if you were honest, you'd say, yeah, they kind of annoy me. Are there people whom we despise? (laughs) Paul reminds them that the gospel blows all that away and enables and equips us to treat everyone with perfect courtesy. See, in writing to his young protege, Paul gives us a powerful seven-part picture essentially of what Christ-likeness looks like, of what it means to live in a way which is beautifully, humbly, attractively different. We need to remember who we are and then to live it out. Now, now remember, this is everywhere in the New Testament. Paul says it again and again. Everything he writes is littered with this insistence. In Romans, rather than being conformed to the world, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Galatians, we're to display the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. In Philippians, we're to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We shine like lights in Colossians. We must put to death what's earthly and put on as God's chosen one, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Ephesians, walk as children of the light, taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. 
You can't really miss it. As God's people, we're supposed to be different. So Paul says to Titus, remember to tell them that. <laughs> we are different. We need to live like. And then just to underline it in verse 3, he says, remind them that what life is like without Christ. Because when we remember that, that will drive us to be different. In verse 3, Paul characterizes life without God in seven words. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul knows that ultimately there is nothing attractive about life without God. Occasionally, we get sucked into thinking that living for ourselves, doing what we want to do when we want to do it, not doing anything we don't want to do would be so much easier, so much more satisfying. But Paul says, no, living in rebellion against God is cosmically stupid. To live without God is to lose the way, to lose the plot. It's not freedom. It's the most tragic kind of slavery. It is selfishness and will lead inexorably, eventually, to bitterness and a breakdown in every part of our lives as people walk away from the love of God and turn on each other. Be honest. Do you ever slip into thinking that people who aren't Christians are living on the fun side of the island? Nothing could be further from the truth. Ultimately, there is nothing beautiful or finally desirable about living for ourselves. Sin is catastrophically stupid. It's repeating the choice of Adam and Eve who swapped life to rebel against God and lost everything. In the moment, we sin because we think it's going to make us, make us happier. But it robs us of intimacy with God and security and satisfaction and delight. And not only does sin not deliver, it actually robs us of what we already have. How we need to look at our friends who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ and feel our hearts breaking for them. We need to ache for the kids in youth group or the people in our street, the members of our families who don't know Christ or, or who look like they're walking away from Him, and we need to live differently. We need to remember what life is like without Christ and pour ourselves into being different in His grace. See, Paul walks us through this to make sure we're clear on the alternative to being different as we live gospel-shaped lives in the power of Christ. It's actually a straight choice. Either we live differently or we slide back into a morass of emptiness. There is a vast gulf between life in Christ and life lived in opposition to Christ. And seeing that gulf should shock us into making sure that we do not go there again. Paul says, tell them to remember what life is like without Christ and be different. And then verses 4 to 7, he says, remember the difference Christ has made and be different. 
Titus 3, 4 to 7 is one of those passages which is so condensed and rich that it's sometimes suggested as part of an early Christian song or even a confession of faith used by new converts. We can't be sure of that, but we can be sure it is one of the most powerful and concise statements of the work of Christ for us in the entire New Testament. Hear these words. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become, become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The key to these verses is that little phrase at the start of verse 5. He saved us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God has intervened through the power of the Spirit dramatically, powerfully to make it possible for us to live in the way that Paul's been describing. God has broken into our lives. He's brought us to life. He has changed us beyond recognition. How could we not live in a way which fits with that? That's the core idea, but there's so much else packed in here. The mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is described so beautifully as the moment when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. The fact that Jesus embodies both goodness and, and loving kindness in itself demands that we follow in His steps. The fact that the Father's initiative had absolutely nothing to do with us, that it wasn't because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, should move us to a grateful response that's expressed by a new life that's just soaked in mercy shown to other people. And God has done so much more than simply inspired us or instructed us or even been generous to us. He's transformed us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus. This is one of the most blatantly Trinitarian references in the New Testament. The Father sends the Son who pours out the Spirit, and the Spirit makes a profound difference. Paul describes it here as the washing of regeneration and renewal. He just piles up metaphors. The, the work of the Spirit is described as washing us clean, bringing us to a new birth, re rebooting us so that we can live differently. God's act of justifying us, equipping us, wrapping us in Christ's perfect righteousness has real-time consequences, makes us heirs of the hope of eternal life, and it changes the, tra the trajectory of our lives so that we start to act as those who become part of the royal family of God. As we saw yesterday, when Mark took us to 2, 11 to 14, where Paul backed up his appeal to teach grace to all kinds of people by a stunning statement of the impact of Christ's grace on us, Paul backs up his insistence that we're to live differently with a majestic explanation of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who make it possible for people like us to live like this in real time. You know, I think there's a sense in which in this letter to Titus, we see Paul unplugged. It's almost as if, because he's talking to Titus, 
him. He spends so much time with him. He trusts implicitly that he just kind of shoots from his inspired hip, going straight to the heart of, heart of things. He says, Titus, tell those guys on Crete to be different. But notice Paul's not actually capable of just telling people to do the right thing <laughs> without inexorably coming back to the fact that God has changed everything in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. As the power of His Spirit turns everything upside down and makes it possible for us to be different. So are we? It's never a comfortable question to ask, but we need to ask. The Father has saved us through the work of Christ. The impact and the influence of the Holy Spirit in us is real and permanent. And does it show in our aspirations and our priorities and our attitudes and our actions? It should show in the way we treat people, people in church, people in our families, people on our street, people on the bus, people sleeping on the street, people across our nation, across our world. It should affect every single second of our lives, how we spend our money, where we choose to live, how we approach relationships, how we speak of politics, how we use our time, what makes us laugh, how we speak about other people. Paul's saying, it all matters. Being different matters. And we know it matters because we know what life without Christ is like. And we know what Christ has done. So let's throw ourselves together into being who we are. That's the first and really the major part of the message of this chapter. Paul says, come on, Titus, live like this. Remind them to live like this and keep banging on about it until it gets into their heads. And then he knows it's going to be a tough gig on Crete. So he says a couple more things at the end. Three from, from 3 verse 8, he says, don't be distracted from this task of living a gospel-shaped different life. The saying's trustworthy, 3 verse 8. And I want you to insist on these things. Stay focused, Titus so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, profitable for people. Paul backs up what he's just said by saying the saying's trustworthy. There are five of these trustworthy sayings in the pastoral letters. This is the only one in Titus. It's Paul's way of kind of getting out his highlighter and you know, coloring it bright yellow. You know? This really matters. Insist on this. The announcement of what God has done and is doing and will do in Christ, the gospel set out so powerfully in verses 4 to 7, this is the kind of health-giving teaching, the sound doctrine that Paul has been telling Titus to teach, get others to teach, so that the churches in Crete might be marked by the gospel-shaped lives which stand out from the rest of their society. He says, Titus, keep focusing on this. Proclaim the gospel with clarity and insight in a way that moves and equips and strengthens people to live differently in a tough and broken world. You know, let me tell you something about your pastor, if you have a pastor. I don't know all of your pastors personally, but even if I've never met them, if they're doing their job, they're people who really only have one thing to say. 
The challenge of being a pastor, being a preacher, is to say the one thing over and over and over and over and over again in such a rich way from the Scriptures that people usually don't notice that all you're doing is saying the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, some of you know in our early years in Dublin, we had uh, a few rocky years at the beginning as the kind of gospel took root in a, in a church that really didn't know the gospel. And after about three years, one church member who was particularly disgruntled with me um, came up to me and said, uh, one of the things I really don't like about you is that all your sermons are exactly the same. Now, I had just preached through, I think, Genesis and Ephesians and Daniel. Now, personally, I reckon that's quite an achievement to make those sermons sound exactly the same. And in a, and in a rare moment of wisdom, I said, thank you very much, <laughs> which threw her completely. And, and she said, what do you mean? And I said, actually, you're on to me. <laughs> I, I really only have one club in the bag. I've only got one thing to say. All the Scriptures preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're saying to me that I am, I am proclaiming the greatness and the beauty of Christ in a way that's dull or predictable or boring, I'm sorry. But if you've actually picked up that every time I stand up to speak to you, I'm speaking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you could not have been more encouraging. We've got to stay focused. We've also got to stay united. Look at verses 9 to 11. It's hard to miss. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. We don't know exactly what was going on, but some people were getting involved in really stupid arguments that were vaguely related, it seems, to the genealogies in Genesis and the laws in the rest of the Pentateuch. These vaguely Jewish arguments were causing havoc for the church. Paul says, Titus, don't get sucked into that kind of stuff. It's a complete waste of time. You see, we have to stay focused and make sure that we devote our energies to the stuff that really matters, to the things that really count in terms of equipping God's people to live authentic, distinctive, Christ-like lives. And that means focusing on life-giving, healthy, gospel-saturated teaching. Now, I'm passionate about theology. I'm the principal of a theological college. There are lots of important questions that are secondary, but that are not the gospel. And it is the gospel that unites us. It is the gospel that must be front and center. That's why I pray that Kinfar goes on for years and years, or if Kinfar stops, that something else steps in to enable us to remind each other from across this island, from our different experiences and traditions with our different accents, from our different nations around the world, to stay focused on the truth of the gospel, because it's so easy to get sidetracked. Now, I'd be surprised if too many people you know, in Donegal, you know, or Longford, or Offaly, are getting marred in the intricacies of orthodox, unorthodox Jewish myths. But there will be things that are deflecting us from the centrality of the gospel. 
It's easy to make important secondary issues all important so that we start to be known for our stance on one issue or we start to judge others on their stance on that issue. For some of us, politics can be the thing that displaces the gospel from its central position, either with a capital P or a small one. For others, it might be immensely complex and sensitive debate raging around the issues of gender. For others, at times, it's a, it's a model of ministry that we think will be the silver bullet that will help us reach Ireland, or exactly the tone of the evangelistic approach we need to take. Let's do all that we can, everything in our power, to make sure that we are not distracted, but above all else, we are people who are utterly devoted to, centered on, immersed in, committed to living and speaking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because the implications of the gospel aren't important, but because they're not the main game. Only the gospel itself can occupy that position. And on top of that, getting distracted and pouring all our energies into secondary issues and making them the main thing can actually deeply damage the work of the local church. Look at where Paul goes in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. These are pretty strong words. But Paul writes these words because he knows that confusing the gospel with its implications is deeply damaging. Holding our opinions on secondary issues with a passion that should be reserved for our commitment to Christ and the gospel is deeply divisive. And Paul is in no doubt that someone who insists in, on damaging people by misleading them on driving people apart, on stirring them up, on cutting them off from other believers has to be dealt with. You get two warnings, and then you're to be sidelined. That's hard. But to refuse to act for the good of God's gospel people, even when you're warned and pleaded with, is very sadly to announce apparently that you're warped and sinful, twisted, bent on singing. But you see, God's people matter more than us. The gospel matters more than us. So for our own sake and for the sake of God's people, let's not be distracted. Let's not lose our grip on the gospel because it's the gospel who brings us to life. It's the gospel that makes us different. It's the gospel which equips us to lead differently. It's through the gospel that God leads himself, leads himself, gives himself to us and unites us to Christ and to each other. Our unity is in the gospel displacing the gospel from the center of our lives and our ministries and our churches has a catastrophic effect. Something precious has happened here this weekend. I suppose that, that the immediate preamble to this conference, it probably began in, in the Isaacs Hotel in Pier Street in Dublin about 2001 or 2002, when the Irish Preachers Conference started. I think there were about 25 of us there at the first one. Lots of us had never been in a room before. 
independents, Presbyterians, Baptists. We let a couple of Anglicans in, you know, you know. And gradually over that year and the year after and the year after that, we discovered that there was one thing that bound all of us together. The gospel came first. And those were precious days and they continue to be because after about four or five years, I don't think any of us even bothered to look at who was speaking at the conference because we were going to be together with those people whose hearts beat like ours for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And praise God that that grew from a bunch of pastors who grew to love and, and trust each other. Became a bigger group of pastors and gospel workers, men and women who gathered together. And it's becoming a network of churches and 600 of us. And in God's grace, that will continue to grow. But it will only grow if we're not distracted, if we stay focused on the main things, and if we stay soft. Just look again at the deliciously mundane details of the closing paragraph of Titus. In one way, like this is a, these are a terrible few verses to end the conference with, you know? When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. For some reason, Paul's going to send one of these guys to relieve Titus in Crete. Probably Artemis, I think. And he wants Titus to join him on the west coast of Greece, Nicopolis, from where Paul seemed to have intended to set out for Spain. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Titus is to make sure that the otherwise unknown Zenos and the Jewish Christian Apollos are to be provided with the resources they need after a stop off in Crete as a worked example of the message of the letter. And let our people learn to devote themselves to do good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And he signs off almost casually as if Titus knows who's there and who to pass Paul's greetings on to. Everybody here with me sends greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. <laughs> now, the details and the names are here to underline the fact that even when life is massively difficult, even when Paul himself is under pressure, he stays soft. He's not playing the person. He's encouraging people to stick with the Lord Jesus because that's his way. There is a glorious simplicity about this chapter and actually about this letter. Remember the gospel. <laughs> Remind people that we're different. Don't be distracted. Now, there's a strong sense that this letter to Titus is written against the background of countless long journeys and late night conversations between Paul and Titus about the beauty of the Lord Jesus. He says, Titus, you know. <laughs> you know what Jesus has done. You know who we are as the people of God. Now, tell them to live differently. It's not complicated. But this is the message that Paul has for Titus and for us. Teach the gospel in the power of Jesus. Live the gospel for the glory of Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, let's be different and not be distracted. Let's do it today and tomorrow when we go home and do it for the rest of our lives. May God grant us the wisdom and the grace and the strength to live like this. Whether we're locked down or locked up or roaming free, whether we're respected or despised, whether we live or die. And hear these words ringing in our ears as we finish. For when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is who we are. Let's live in the grace that God supplies. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we know you are the God who speaks. Thank you that across this weekend you have spoken to us again and again through your word. We, we have known your presence because we've heard your words of Christ. We know that you've given us all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you've poured your spirit out on us and united us as the people of God. And as we scatter across this land to be reunited with our brothers and sisters in our local churches, we ask that you will help us to remember Jesus Christ, to remember the gospel, to remember who we are, and so to live and speak so differently that the men and women and children of Ireland see and hear of the beauty of Christ and are drawn to Him for His glory. Amen.